listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Rob. Hey, Bob. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be back. Good to see you again. You've been on the podcast once before. Uh, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero Podcast. You are Rob. I'm uh, Robert Wiblin. Yeah, I'm head research at 80,000 Hours. Uh, and, I, and I guess for the purposes of this conversation, uh, uh, my, my background is, uh, I guess I've been involved in the effective altruism uh, community slash movement slash set of mm -hmm. ideas since around uh, around 2012. Uh, so I've seen how things have evolved over the years. Um, so yeah, happy to talk about it. And we're going to talk about that. So yeah, so 80,000 hours, which by the way, I recommend it's one of my favorite podcasts and which you co-host, um, is associated with the Center for Effective Altruism. Is that still true? Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's complicated. It could be a little bit tedious for for the audience. Yes. Well, uh, we don't. Uh, I mean, the point. I guess the Center for Effective Altruism. My main point is, it is maybe the main institutional incarnation of effective altruism, which is something we're going to talk about. Uh, I gather it was certainly it was founded by two of the main. I guess it, if there are three philosophers associated with effective altruism, two of them founded it. Right, uh, Toby Ord and Will McCaskill. Peter That's Singer it. being the third philosopher I had in mind. Yeah. Um, and uh, and there, there's some kind of connection between it and the podcast or was or something. Right. So, yes. So at the moment, you've got the Center for Effective Altruism, which helps to organize effective altruism community effectively. You know, it runs conferences and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and things like that. Um, it's part of this legal entity called Effective Ventures, uh, mm. which is kind of the fiscal sponsor of the Center for Effective Altruism. And that's also the fiscal sponsor of 80,000 Hours. Uh, and the fiscal so sponsor you're, you're of the nonprofit siblings. sector is it's the legal entity that receives the donations, basically. Okay, so you're, you're, your podcast is like kind of like a sibling of uh, Center for Effective Altruism or something. Yeah, we definitely we definitely cover a lot of topics that are of great interest to people in effective altruism. I guess not not not, not exclusively, but I, right. yeah, the, the tagline of the show is uh, the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to to solve them. And that okay. basically is is what we try to keep coming back to. That's where eighty thousand hours comes from. You did the math, and there and my career consists of exactly eighty thousand hours, right? Uh, <laughs> I think uh, you and I may not have uh, have quite that many hours left, but. To the to, to the young people in the audience, like I think yeah. if you're graduating, uh, no, then you, I, I, I certainly believe me. I recognize that most of my <laughs> eighty thousand hours are behind me. Spent, yeah. I've done that much math, Rob. Don't worry. Uh, but uh, yeah, okay. So listen, the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast again uh, is because effective altruism, which again you're not a formal representative of, but have been very involved with, uh, has been in the news over the past couple of years in some ways that probably didn't make your life easier and <laughs> you weren't entirely happy about. The big one being Sam Bankman-Fried, of right. course, who was a professed effective altruism, a supporter of EA Ventures. I assume he had, I haven't checked, I assume he had donated money to the Center for Effective Altruism or one of these entities we just mentioned. Um, he was a supporter. Yeah. And, and, uh, and you know, he... he Effective altruism, you know, joined the, the news cycle along with him and came in for some criticism, various principles ranging from philosophical principles associated with it, like utilitarianism, mm. to uh, principles that effective altruism has has advanced, like earn to give. In other words, the idea that, look, if you want to do good, you don't have to do it Mother Teresa style by actually 
going over to Africa and handing out mosquito nets, you can make a ton of money and donate a lot of it. So that 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 whole principle uh, fell under criticism. Then there was a second uh, wave of controversy that was uh, a little more ambiguous, I would think, from your point of view. Whether it was bad publicity or good depended on where you stood. And I'm I'm talking about the uh, OpenAI boards showdown with Sam Altman. That was depicted as by some as a kind of a fight between some effective altruist types on the board and Sam Altman. Uh, I don't know how much truth there was in that, but but at any in any event, some of uh, the pro Altman people depicted EA as this kind of dark force, you know, behind the scenes uh, trying to dethrone um, their hero, I guess. Uh, yeah. And interesting questions were raised there, specifically with respect to artificial intelligence and and EA and and uh, what it's come uh, to mean. So I want to do uh, and also I noticed that in the course of the publicity surrounding that uh, effective altruism was described in what I thought was some at best oversimplified ways. Like here's a quote from The New York Times referring to Eliezer Yudkowsky, who is, of course, AI doomer in chief. Um, it says, Mr. Yudkowsky was a leader in a community of people who called themselves rationalists or, in later years, effective altruists. Well, I mean, there is overlap between the community known as rationalists and the community known as effective altruists. I wouldn't say that they're one and the same and there was just a relabeling, uh, right? Yeah, I think so, I think that's pretty off base. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm a little bit surprising that, uh, that a journalist would write that and not, uh, not run it past the people who could explain the reality of the situation. Uh, but yeah, we, we could go into that if you like. Yeah, so I want to get into the whole thing, and uh, and I'm glad that you've got. Uh, I think you've got a fair amount of time to spare. Um, yeah, let's uh, I, let's start. Uh, well, kind of at the beginning. Um, <laughs> do you? I don't want to over dramatize it, but do you remember where you were when you heard about the <laughs> Sam Bankman Freed fiasco? I do. Yes, I, I think I was. I was in the office, and I initially heard that FTX was having some financial problems. Uh, I suppose initially, for the first few days, it sounded like you know maybe they just made some bad business dealings, and they were no longer liquid or no longer solvent, or the company was going to be bought out. Um, I think to be honest, like so, I knew about Sam Bankman Fried's philanthropic activities. I must admit, I, I don't have an enormous interest in crypto or in, I didn't have much of an interest mm -hmm. in, in FTX as a business. So I hadn't really been tracking it very much. Uh, and so that it certainly came out of left field for me. I guess I, uh, it gradually came out over the coming week that it looked like there might have been particular, like very serious crimes committed uh, in the process of FTX going under. Uh, and basically that has turned out to be correct. It seemed like there was a substantial level of fraud, misappropriation of funds, uh, theft, more or less, uh, that uh, occurred in FTX. Um, and I guess its sister organization, the, the hedge fund uh, Alameda Research, mm -hmm. uh, through 2022. Um, so we could go into, I, I'm not sure how familiar audience will be, or the audience will be with uh, the, the details of what happened at, at FTX. Uh, but more or less, it seemed like Sam and at least a handful of colleagues were involved in effectively stealing funds from people who had money deposited at, at FTX, uh, which they did, I think, in order to try to prop up this hedge fund that Sam had a stake in, uh, which had lost a whole lot of money. And they were hoping that they would be able to take the money from FTX depositors, prop up uh, the, the, the hedge fund, and then make everyone whole afterwards. I, that would be my guess as to, as to the plan. But this was uh, 
criminal, illegal, horribly immoral, uh, and the whole thing went uh, went went belly up, and and both of them ended up going 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 bankrupt. Yeah, I think uh, he had both given the people who deposited money in FTX the impression that the money was there, yeah. just kind of literally there, not being handed out to Alameda, and and also I think in the case it became apparent that he had mid mid misled. I forget whether it was investors in Alameda or or lenders to Alameda about uh, the status of Alameda's balance sheet. And right. uh, so, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd assumed, I think, like the great majority of people had assumed that they were simply holding the crypto assets, you know, uh, not lending them out, not using them for anything. They were simply holding on to them uh, yeah. like like gold in a vault. Uh, but yeah. as it turned out, that was that was not the case. And they'd been doing all kinds of stuff with uh, the money that that was that was deposited there. And then when they when they lost that money, then the depositors were uh, were in, in deep trouble. Yeah. Um, have you, by the way, have you read Michael Lewis's book about, uh, I've read a, I've read a summary of it. Uh, I haven't, yeah. I haven't read the, read the whole thing it's yet, actually, but I'll get to I it mean, at some point. It's taken some heat, but I think it's mm. very valuable, uh, in giving us a sense for what probably the best guess we can get as to what he's Sam Bankman free is really like. He's an unusual character. You had him on the podcast at one point. I, I did. Mean, yeah. Do, do you have a, do you have a take? Do you have a, do you have a kind of a theory of, of Sam? So yeah, over the yeah since since this came out, I've kind of been torn between two different explanations for what happened. I think mm -hmm. uh, a very natural one would be to think, well, he was this ultra utilitarian, like max expected value maximizing person who lacked moral restraint, and uh, basically when when the business was facing problems, he didn't feel any compunction about stealing the money effectively because he thought that it had positive expected financial value. And that would mean he'd be able to make more money both to give away to the causes that he cared about um, and I guess to, to do anything else with the money that that, that he wanted. Uh, and I think uh, having read Michael Lewis or having read the summary of Michael Lewis's book, uh, it certainly seems like that was a, a factor. There was, there was some of that going on that, that definitely describes some of the dynamic. The other thing that I thought was very plausible that would go on and I think probably you know, is, is, is another factor to what happened is just, it's not uncommon for people in the financial industry, in hedge funds or in investment in banks, that they lose a whole lot of money. And then they basically do a double or nothing thing where they manage to grab some resources elsewhere, make big bets mm -hmm. on the stock market, hope that they'll be able to make the, the, the thing whole, save their reputation, save the business, not get fired. Um, and I think people in these industries often tend to be quite overconfident about their own uh, estimations of, uh, you know, what the expected returns are, what, what the risks are that they're taking. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a very natural thing when you've gone from being a huge hero and being lauded in the financial press to the, having the prospect of your business completely going bankrupt, that uh, especially if you're a risk-taking person by personality, which I think Sam Bankman-Fried certainly was, that there's a very strong temptation to do this double or nothing game, basically, where you have a 50% chance maybe of saving your situation and 50% chance of becoming a pariah. Um, and I sounds seems like he maybe took that bet as as a number of people have uh, over over the years uh, when their businesses have or, or they're they're part of a, a business has run into trouble. Yeah, um, I I've always thought it was possible even that Madoff uh, got into his trouble that way initially just trying to cover some some trouble he had suddenly run into and uh, you know he's uh, I I don't know. It'd be, he, there are slippery slopes uh, that that people can can step onto for sure. I, I I did get the sense from the Michael Lewis book that 
you know, he was sincere about the effective altruism. Now, what does that mean? I mean, all human beings pretty much tell themselves that they're doing good, right? So uh, the whole question of what it means to say you're motivated by altruism is is uh, kind of an amorphous one. But, um, but I certainly think he probably believed that himself. And then the, the, I think there was some element of what you alluded to, which is uh, his uh, expected value. I mean, we should say to people who, you know, haven't, aren't familiar with the idea, uh, it's just that, uh, you know, the, the um, you know, if, if uh, you have a 50% chance uh, of winning uh, $5 uh, and you're betting even money to 50 then uh, the expected return is, uh, well, I guess the expected return is zero in that case, right? Because uh, am I doing this right? You tell me you're in this business. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, and, and if you have uh, a 60% chance of making a dollar, then the expected return is, is 60, 60 cents. cents. And most, most human beings add a second factor, which is risk, degree of risk aversion. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, some speculation is that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried just didn't do that part. And in fact, he actually said as much famously a couple of times, one on Tyler Cowen's podcast, where he said, uh, you know, Tyler said, well, suppose you could flip something like, suppose you could flip a coin and the chances are 50% that the world just becomes way, way better, you know, much more than twice as good as it is now. So there's the expected return is way positive. Uh, but then if, if, if it comes out the wrong way, everything blows up and there's no more world. And, and, and I think basically Sam Bankman-Fried said, oh, sure, I'd take that. And then Tyler said, and then would you do it again? And he said, right, oh, yeah. sure, I'd do it again. Would you do it again? Well, sure, I'd do it. Well, of course, at some point, this is, this <laughs> yeah. is literally crazy. I mean, because you're almost guaranteed to ultimately blow everything up. But he said, at least, that that's what uh, he would do. And um, so uh, I uh, I don't know. Is it, it, do you have any sense for whether he kind of you know he was in in some ways not kind of an ordinary human being? It seems. No. Like. I, well, I think psychologically he was very unusual. Um, I think it's clear he didn't have the instinctive fear of risk or of downside that a normal person has, certainly than <laughs> that I have. Um, and I think many people who end up, I think, in situations like his, uh, where they're running an enormous business, often they are extremely risk-taking by nature. And that's how they've managed, by winning up a series of bets like that, mm -hmm. they've managed to get into a position of, of, of great influence. Uh, and I think it's not then uncommon that they continue taking enormous risks because right. they're very overconfident or just temperamentally act that way, uh, and then it eventually uh, blows up. So I think that's 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 one factor. I agree, it, yeah, most people at a, at a degree of risk aversion. And I, I think that on the, on the Tyler Cohen podcast, it, that the situation was actually not as generous to Sam as you're, as you're portraying. I think it was more like a 51% chance that you duplicate the universe. So there's, so there's twice as much okay. of everything, or a 49, with a 49% chance that everything is destroyed. <laughs> and Sam said, yeah, I would, I would, I would take that bet, which, I mean, I would not take that. Bad. I don't think many listeners yeah. would, uh, because obviously you're running a 49% chance of destroying all value, including yourself and right. everything you care about. So I would not, 
Uh, yeah, I would not, not recommend that anyone uh, accept that level of, I mean, philosophically, uh, in decision theory, that would be called, I guess, risk neutrality about, about uh, yeah. internal value. Yeah. Um, I, I think there is, there's just a general philosophical puzzle here around how do we use expected value. Um, uh, it's often is referred to as kind of the St. Petersburg paradox. So you can imagine that you could sharpen this question where you say, well, what if there's a 99.9% .9 chance that you'll increase the value in the universe by a hundredfold? Yeah, uh, but uh, with a with a 0.1% chance of destroying it, um, and then uh, and then so you might say, well, at that level of stakes, maybe I maybe I would accept the the risk, uh, but then if you keep repeating it, as as you say, then you end right. up with the view that well, sure, you have uh, an, an infinitesimal probability of an enormously valuable universe, but a, an overwhelming chance that you've got nothing whatsoever. Um, and this this basic style of paradox shows up in decision theory and efforts to figure out how do you use expected value and how do you trade off rewards versus uh, probability, rewards versus risk. And I'd say philosophers just don't have a solution to a lot of those, mm -hmm. to, to, to that underlying problem. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's an as yet unsolved uh, set, uh, set of issues in, in, in a particular branch of philosophy. Uh, but I think that does not excuse one <laughs> to make it uh, going in wholeheartedly, enthusiastically embracing such a insane <laughs> answer to the, to, to the question. Right. The um, now I actually haven't heard the Tyler Cowen podcast. Was I right mm -hmm. that he that he went on to say, "And would you do it again?" Or did I make that part up? I, I believe. It, go ahead. I think that he said yes that he would take it repeatedly. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So, yeah, I, I, I could explain where I think Sam went wrong, and it's on several different <laughs> several different levels. I think many of us have <laughs> already have an intuition about that. Yeah. But go, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I would say so. One thing is. I think if you even find yourself asking the question, should I steal all of this money uh, in order to try to prop up my business in order to make more money to give away, then kind of you're already have made a big mistake in mm -hmm. in how you're trying to make yourself, well, what sort of person you're trying to become. Um, in practice, I think whether you're, you know, whatever moral uh, philosophy you're into, in, in practice, people should be trying to become virtuous people who ask the right questions and have the right instincts about what what things are reasonable to do and what things are not. Mm -hmm. And I think it, everyone should be trying to cultivate the virtue of not being inclined to ask the question, should I steal all of this money or should I commit this horrible crime uh, in pursuit of my personal project? So there's kind of the, the virtue angle. Then just even if setting that aside, uh, if, if you are going to ask the question, I think you should give a lot of weight to stealing is wrong, taking other people's resources is wrong, violating their rights is wrong. So even though I think there might be good consequences and expectation from this extremely risky uh, action, I'm still not going to do it because there are just constraints. There are rules that one has to follow, uh, rules of good conduct, uh, and this, this violates them insanely flagrantly. So there's that. And then if you, if you set that aside and say, well, I'm not going to care about following rules, I'm not going to care about coordinating with other people or acting fairly or, uh, or, or justly, then even if you are only thinking about maximizing expected value, then I think what he did is still crazy uh, mm -hmm. because it's just not, you know, from, from a personal point of view, I think it was crazy because, I mean, look at, uh, it, even if it was only selfish, then it was uh, nuts because he still could have gone worked on, out well for him. It doesn't no. seem to have worked out well. It's an extremely bad outcome uh, for him personally. And then in terms of the effects on the world, it's not the case that the problem, like the, the things that he cared about, they so desperately needed his funding that it was worth bringing them into enormous disrepute, uh, trashing the reputation of all of the causes that he had seemingly been trying to, to help to fix in order to give us some, to give them some chance of having additional funding. Mm -hmm. In fact, things had been going very well within those 
problem areas. Lots of people had been getting on board, trying to help, you know, with, with factory farming, with risks from pandemics uh, on, on down the line before Sam Bankman-Fried had had any money to, to give away at all. Um, so it was, there was every reason to be extremely risk averse about the amount of funding available uh, and also about the, the reputation. And uh, I think any sensible consequentialist or utilitarian analysis would have said, no, just simply allow the hedge fund to go under. It's it's totally fine. Um, even setting aside all of the reasons why 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 you shouldn't go and engage in that action. So a lot of a lot of a lot of mistakes, both uh, kind of practical and ethical. Yeah. The um you mentioned uh virtue just now. I'm not sure that's permissible in <laughs> <laughs> in the philosophical circles that are said to dominate EA, let's let's talk just a little about. Sure. I mean, I mean, let, let me actually let me put that off for one second. I want to get into the question of utilitarianism, which is, I would say, the main guiding philosophical foundation uh, of EA. Although there are different, you know, variants of utilitarianism, um, I, I want to get into that. But first, uh, before I forget, has has any of this given you second thoughts about the idea of earn to give, which I think you had been a champion of before? It makes sense on paper, uh, you know, um, that uh, there are definitely a lot of people who, uh, in principle, could do a lot more good by donating a fair amount of their earnings to charities than, than by becoming a one worker in one of those charities. Um, Makes sense. Uh, but I, I guess you know, some people would say that the SBF story illustrates some kind of pitfalls. I don't know. Do, have you had any second thoughts? Yes. I, uh, I mean, I think it's definitely a strike against it. As we say, I guess it's an update against the idea. It's hard, hard for it not you, to be. You've updated your priors a little as they say. <laughs> exactly, yeah, as, 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 as the jargon goes. Yeah. Yes, it definitely it definitely is. I, I mean, it's a it's a little bit hard to know how should you update against it? Because on, on the one hand, it's ended up being a large fraction of all of the effects that the idea of voting to give has had is, uh, in practice has been to, I guess, contribute to Sam Bankman-Fried going and doing the stuff that that he's done. Um, so in terms of its like overall average effect, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a huge influence. If you wanted to do it by number of people, then you'd say, well, there's many thousands, possibly tens of thousands of people, broadly speaking, have chosen higher paying jobs in order to be able to donate more uh, because they think that that's the best, the best way that they can contribute personally to solving serious problems in the world. And of them, how many of them have gone and committed crimes or uh, or done things that, things that are grossly immoral like this? Uh, I guess we've got an example of definitely one, possibly three or more um, in, in the FTX case. Probably, presumably there are some other people who've gone and done less serious things, but uh, things that I would probably question and say they're not super, super moral out of that uh, remaining tens of thousands of people who are broadly adopting this strategy, um, but I, it still is probably a pretty small fraction of the of the total. So, has has the idea gotten someone unlucky in prompting this particular event? And in fact, it's not going to happen very very much going forward. Uh, hard hard to say. I mean, people people did raise this concern from the beginning that going into some industries, I guess like like finance perhaps, could cause you to be around people who might negatively influence you, or it could cause you to lose your 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 moral constraints just because maybe being in business, being exposed to the incentives to make money uh, could could reduce your virtue, could 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 make you a more uh, unhinged person. Um, and like I think most people, that's not going to be a huge effect. And I think we have lots of examples of people going into finance, making money and giving it away and just seemingly being the same sensible uh, 
kind of kind of people I'd like to hang out with and be friends with, uh, all, all, all mm -hmm. the same. But uh, yeah, I mean, it does. I guess in particular, it worries me that the people who might end up most influential with the most money to give away will often be people who have taken enormous risks in business, because that is one way that you can make a lot of money um, mm -hmm. if, if you're willing to to really play double or nothing again and again and again. So it's probably it, there probably is a systematic bias towards the people who end up being perhaps the billionaires who have adopted an earning to give strategy might be people who you don't want to emulate and whose behavior could often end up being harmful or, or, or reckless. So that that certainly worries me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there there may be a couple of other things about SBF that are relevant that, that uh, come through in the Lewis book. W one is that he seems to have been a person who really didn't care much about other people, even in the sense of being curious about them, let alone kind mm. of feeling their pain or anything like that, and didn't care that much about their opinion of him. I think I'm getting that kind of right. But one thing, one thing Michael says in the book is, he, Sam Bankman-Fried never asked him a question about himself, never said, you know, and all the time they spent together, never said, what's it like to be a writer? Or what's your next book? Or anything. It, it's just, and and uh, that he kind of always, uh, you know, almost gave people the impression that he didn't didn't care that much uh, about their lives. The other thing is that, uh, and maybe it's kind of related, is uh, that he grew up more than even most of his contemporaries and 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 kind of a demographic cousin, you know, people kind of in his demographic. In a world of video games, he didn't he didn't do well socially. He didn't have a real physical social life, but got totally immersed in video games. And, you know, one can only conjecture whether that leads you to a more detached, you know, approach hmm. to all of the little calculations you're making in real life and the risks they entail and, and so on. I, I don't I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it certainly does seem that he was much more interested in, I guess, business ideas, um, systematic thinking more so than than people. Um, I, I, I'm reluctant to say to that's the thing that drove him to engage in these behaviors because many people fall into that camp. I mean, I guess, like relative to average, I suppose I'm probably more interested in ideas and and and, and philosophy than I am in 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 people relative to to to, to a randomly chosen person. But I don't think I'm in any way inclined to engage you're in that SBF. kind of. I've listened to your podcast. <laughs> I don't think you're in SBF territory in terms of your indifference to the lives of of others. Yeah, yeah. So um, I wouldn't want to. I mean, maybe, maybe it's a partial explanation, but I think I wouldn't want to excuse or, or, or give that as the primary explanation. I, I mean, it did seem like it's it's more than like not a having a massive interest in other people. It seemed like his personal relationships were quite odd in that he didn't have you know deep affection for the for the people in 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 his own personal life and i think that's a bit mm -hmm. more unusual and so and that perhaps stands out more as a distinctive thing that perhaps could contribute to mm -hmm. unusual behavior as well so I, I never thought of the video game angle i uh um i would guess that it's more that if you're less interested in people perhaps you're more interested in video games yeah, rather than yeah, the video yeah, games it driving could, it but uh it uh, can I work suppose, both I mean, ways yeah i mean there is a thing perhaps having the sense that i'm just playing a game and i'm just trying to make the best decision within the structure of a game, if that's your mentality in normal life, perhaps that does cause you to be looking for edge cases, looking for ways to exploit the rules mm -hmm. uh, in a way that someone who wasn't familiar with uh, with that way of thinking about the world, uh, that it wouldn't, it wouldn't jump out at them. Mm -hmm.
Yeah. I, I, I want to put in one good word, one more good word for Michael Lewis's book. I know, Michael, I'm maybe a little biased, but, uh, you know, he's taking heat for not sufficiently villainizing Sam Bankman, Freed, and maybe for just not getting into the criminal allegations very much at all, mm -hmm. although that may have had to do with the timing of writing the book relative to the court case. I don't know. But uh, his attitude of relative detachment, a kind of journalistic detachment, I think is what allows him to depict uh, certain aspects of Bankman-Fried. He just wouldn't see if you, if you did, if you were quicker to judge him, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and I think there's, there's always uh, value in, uh, in just trying to step back and assess uh, before judging. Um, so I, I'd, I'd recommend that people read that book. Now, on this um, philosophical, it's called uh, Going Infinite. On this philosophical question, uh, so, you know, and of course he raises this too. I mean, we've already gotten into it in a way in, in, because when we were talking about the his expected return calculations and continuing to flip that coin with all of, all of uh, humankind at stake, uh, you know, we're talking about a kind of utilitarian calculation. The idea being that human welfare or happiness, however you want to put it, is a good thing. And that the that your goal uh, should be to maximize human welfare, or you know, there there are uh, various ways of putting it. Uh, Peter Singer, whom we mentioned earlier, uh, is of course a utilitarian. Um, and one thing I want to eventually get into is 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 how EA kind of evolved after Peter was associated with its origins. Peter is less mm -hmm. of a quote long termist which is, of course, the kind of the variant of uh, EA, I guess, that gets EA very interested in, in AI and a lot of other issues. I, I want to get into that. But for now, on the, on the philosophical issue, utilitarianism is often uh, contrasted with, among other kinds of ethics, virtue ethics, right? Mm. So like, uh, you know, I just have these basic, you know, honesty, loyalty, whatever they are. Uh, you make whatever virtues they are. If it's if it's if it's more like a series of rules that you never violate, and less like a kind of uh, consideration of the consequences of your actions for other people, then it's uh, then it's more of a virtue ethics. But you were you were using the word virtue in uh, a pretty approving way. There, are you yourself a? Uh, sounds like maybe you're not a strict utilitarian, or well, I think that there's. There's two ways that you could get to talking about and caring about virtues. One would be to embrace you know, the theory of ethics that is virtue ethics and say, well, no, fundamentally, what is of importance in the universe is cultivating virtue, uh, trying to mm -hmm. become a, a virtuous person. Um, I don't go in for that so much. Uh, I'm not sure whether, like, what the meta-ethical grounding of virtue ethics would be. I haven't, I haven't investigated yeah. that fully, so I wouldn't say there's, there's nothing that you could uh, forward there. But the way I think about it more is, even if you're, even if you were committed to utilitarianism only, which 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 I'm certainly not, um, there's a, there's a a branch of utilitarianism called global utilitarianism, which would say not only should you evaluate outcomes uh, on on their consequences and how good they are, but you can evaluate everything uh, based on the kind of consequences that it tends to produce. And then you can end up saying, well, what sort of character uh, tends to produce good outcomes? Uh, and basically, you would end up calling those virtues and mm -hmm. saying, well, in practice. Would people have more positive effects on the world if they tried to cultivate virtues and thought about 
their behavior and thought about themselves in terms of, am I acting virtuously? Am I mm -hmm. becoming a more virtuous person with my actions? And I think the answer in practice is yes. That is an important, a very extremely important part of how you should try to become a person who positively affects the world. Um, so you could, so you could fundamentally, you could value virtues for their own sake, or you could value virtues because you think they'll have good consequences. And this is a good framework for thinking about the effects you'll have. Uh, I think the former is maybe on a bit more shaky ground. The, the latter, I think, is on very strong ground. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly, uh, as a pragmatic issue, I think I, I think about virtue personally, and I think other people should do so as well. If if I heard someone who was saying, "I don't care about how that," <laughs> I don't think or care about whether I am acting virtuously, then I'd say, "Well, I think you're on very shaky ground there," uh, and that could lead you to make big mistakes. Yeah. Now, is that what is sometimes called rule-based ethics as opposed to act? I mean, rule-based utilitarianism as opposed to act-based utilitarianism. In other yeah, words, okay. you, you don't just do the, you don't just say, if I can kill this baby to save five people, I should do it. You also say, well, wait a second. What if we had a world in which it was considered acceptable to kill a baby to save five? Wouldn't everyone live in terror and clutch their babies mm. constantly, right? So that's bad. That's a bad net consequence, right? That. That's what rule-based utilitarianism would say. Yes. Yes, I'm, I'm not a moral philosopher by, by training, but uh, they're, they're certainly related where, I mean, one, one take you could have as a consequentialist is asking, well, what norms, what rules as a society could we follow that would tend to lead to good outcomes? Uh, and that leads you exactly down that line. We're saying, well, in this specific hypothetical case, possibly do, violating this, this social convention would be good. However, the convention itself is good and is something that should be encouraged and maybe maybe pushed on people because if mm -hmm. we if we stopped following that convention then that would lead to to, to bad outcomes in general i mean it mm -hmm. makes a ton of sense right yeah it's funny i did an event with peter singer just a few weeks ago at a bookstore it was about his uh new book the buddhist and the ethicist which i also recommend and i asked him if he was a rule-based or act-based utilitarian i thought he was going to say rule-based i hadn't asked mm. him that before he said act-based. Now, I do think he's there are nuances in his version of act-based utilitarianism that uh, would uh, prevent him from embracing a whole lot of things that uh, a whole lot of kind of atrocious thought experiment type uh, actions that people might associate with crude utilitarianism. But I was I was surprised and I didn't I didn't it wasn't the place to interrogate him further about that. But I, that's what yeah. I'm always I'm more or less a utilitarian, but I've always stressed that I'm kind of a rule based utilitarian which, as you say, can lead to a kind of a virtue-based uh, ethics. I think you really have to distinguish between high-level moral philosophy theory here and meta-ethics and so on, mm -hmm. in which uh, it, it's hard to make the rule utilitarianism work uh, because it, you, have a def you end up with a deflationary story where we say, well, if you specify the rules sufficiently specifically, then it just becomes the same as act utilitarianism. Because you say, well, if we specify every exact situation, every exact part of the hypothetical situation, then we're just down to evaluating the act itself in the in the in, in that particular case. Uh, and so, and why should we talk about it at just a level of generality where we say, you know, considering all of the situations in which someone is making a given trade-off, uh, what should they do on average? Uh, mm -hmm. Why not be more precise about it? However, you know, and I think that that maybe makes sense as a as a matter of in the philosophy seminar room. In practice, as actual human beings going about in the world, uh, if I think about what does, like, how should I think about this? Uh, how should I think about my behavior? Uh, what mm -hmm. will cause me to be a positive influence in the world? I think that doesn't add very much insight. And instead, think thinking I'm just gonna be the kind of person who generally follows uh, 
<laughs> the law who <laughs> generally mm -hmm. follows social mm -hmm. conventions on things that almost everyone agrees. Uh, even if that doesn't, it, even if you uh, even if you were kind of a super brain that could uh, think about every specific situation and always choose the best action, then maybe you should just think about acts without making any generalizations about what uh, what styles of behavior are beneficial. In practice, given just how constrained I am uh, and how biased I might be towards uh, preferring right. particular results uh, and skewing things towards what's convenient at the time, instead, in practice, I should follow rules and I should think about virtue a lot. Not exclusively. You should also mm -hmm. sometimes think about the specific uh, consequences of your actions in a, in a given case when the stakes seem very large. Uh, and maybe you're, you're not... You're, like, should, should you ever maybe skirt a social convention in order to have massively positive consequences? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that you should be doing that that analysis and thinking, well, this is good on a virtue thing, bad on a rule thing, uh, good in terms of it looks good as an individual act, uh, yeah. rather than only just thinking about it from the individual act point of view. Yeah, I think, um, so you mentioned both the, the practical difficulty of calculating the consequences, but also you mentioned bias, which I think is really important uh, because yeah. given what we now know about the subtlety of cognitive biases, and honestly, for all the talk about cognitive biases, I don't think there is a full appreciation of either the, the range of cognitive biases that lead to endless violent conflict uh, or the subtlety of them. And, uh, and, and I think uh, when you do take those things into consideration, you realize that it would be a pretty unusual human being who, who could you know talk about, for example, a conflict that their country is involved in uh, with anything like objectivity uh, in terms of, you know, uh, actually assessing uh well the bias itself affects the calculation of uh of consequences um so yeah. anyway um i mean sbf is a good example of this where if he had cultivated the kind of personality where he would simply regard it as completely unacceptable to pilfer depositors money no matter no matter the circumstances then he would have had more positive consequences on the world and i think that's extremely predictable and it's very predictable for the rest of us too that in our more mundane cases, if we cultivate uh, the kind of uh, if we cultivate the kind of personality that doesn't ask the question, "Should I steal the money?" Uh, then you end up being a better, a more, a more beneficial person. Yeah. The um, so I want to get into long termism and how EA evolved uh, in that direction. Uh, and 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 Peter, I think. Uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he did. He didn't fully embrace that. He he didn't stay fully on board for all of that. I think, of course, it depends on what you mean by long termism. Um, what do you What do you mean by long termism? Yeah, I think so, I guess there's a variety of descriptions. I suppose uh, the more mild one would be to say that thinking about uh, whether we are producing a good long term outcome for civilization and where humanity goes. That's one of the important moral challenges of our time. I think that would be a, a mild description of it, saying this is at least one of the key things that we as people and we as a society ought to be thinking about is where are we going to be in a couple of hundred years time? Where are we going to be in thousands of years time? Because uh, I think people also sometimes talk about hard long-termism, uh, which is, I guess, the idea that the overwhelming majority of the impact that we have or the moral influence that we have is over, it comes via effects that we have, you know, long after we're gone, uh, for, you know, more than 100 or 1000 years in, in, in the future. Um, so that, yeah, that, that'd be a, a, a more extreme take. Uh, and, and it could lead you to say, well, not only is this kind of one of the most important problems, but probably it is the mm -hmm. most important problem. Mm -hmm. The uh, and, and this, 
of course, is part of what got EA people interested in AI or some of them intensely interested. Well, well, I, I guess I should say, well, I, I would, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I know. You're, yeah, yes, I can already see that you're going <laughs> to qualify what I just said. But, but let me just flesh this out for people. So yeah. the idea, one idea that grows out of long-termism is if there is a truly existential risk that's going to um, could wipe out all of life on Earth, and you're thinking, of, and you're a long-term thinking utilitarian, well, that is something you would should be willing to pay a pretty great cost to avoid, even if the chances of it are small, hmm. if you do the math. In fact, one problem is the math is kind of undoable because you're dealing with infinities here, right? Like, it's like... Uh, well, you end up with extremely low probability. Well, yeah, it, it, this brings back kind of St. Petersburg paradox issue that it seems like expected value runs into lots of troubles when you're talking about extremely low probabilities or extremely large benefits, or if they're converging on infinity or are infinite. Uh, then, then, then the whole mechanism seems to kind of break and become extremely counterintuitive. Right. And the other thing is, yeah, I mean, maybe relatedly, there's a question of like how many actually existential risks are there? If by existential you mean wipes out all of human life, uh, there aren't many. Um, even I think most people would say even nuclear war probably wouldn't quite kill everyone. Um, yeah, not I, I'm against it, of course, but but it, but, <laughs> but, 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 it, but it doesn't, it, in terms of how it would plug into the math, you know, it's not, it's not true extinction. I guess in a certain sense, the AI, doom, the hardcore AI doomers, the Yudkowskyite doomers are almost the only ones who, who are throwing out a, a true extinction scenario which I personally consider quite unlikely, but in their scenario, right, there's a superintelligence that actually does uh, put an end to human life. And aside from that, it's hard to imagine uh, scenarios because even horrible pandemics are unlikely to kill everyone and, and, and so on. Biological weapons attacks basically are horrible pandemics if they're on a large scale. Um, and so, so too there, uh, but, uh, do you uh, does that make sense to you so far? Now, oh, you were going to jump in and qualify something I yeah. said. Do that part. So I was going to say, I, this might surprise people, but I feel like long termism just isn't that important in in many ways. Uh, it's interesting philosophically. It's interest interesting as a matter of discourse, but in practice, I don't think whether you place you know a bit of some weight on the, the long term future or a lot of weight on the long term future makes much difference to what things seem best to work on now. Um, especially, as, so many people who are thinking about the long-term future of humanity, they end up working on preventing serious pandemics. They end up wanting to make a transition to superhuman AI go better. Uh, they want to prevent nuclear war. All of these things, I think, are completely consistent with not placing that much weight on the long-term future at all. Because right. uh, I mean, I think we're likely to see a transition to a world in which superhuman AI is doing much or all of the work, or is having enormous structural influences on society. In the next, in, within my lifetime, uh, potentially within the next ten years. So, uh, and I think even if you only concern yourself for the next hundred years, then thinking about how do we prevent conflict, how do we prevent terrible pandemics, how do we make a transition to superhuman AI go well, just stand out as excellent opportunities, regardless. So, in some ways, I think it's a bit of a shame that we've ended up talking so much about the philosophical issues around long-termism because it just doesn't seem decision relevant a lot of the time. Uh huh. Yeah, no, I've thought about that. There is this critique of long-termism that 
it devalues uh, present suffering uh, because in the scheme of things, when you're talking about, you know, billions and billions of years of human life, all of us pale by comparison. And in principle, it would be worth all of us paying a horrible price and enduring horrible suffering if if it meant if it made the difference between all of those future people existing and them not existing. But again, that's not the real world because, uh, you know, first of all, as I said, nuclear war, pandemics and so on are not true extinction experiences. So they don't mm. quite fit into the math that way. And then there's a point that you made, which is I, I have been very concerned about so-called existential risk, which I don't really consider quite existential because, you know, it affects me and my children and everybody I know it, it right. all these things are actually short-term risks and that includes AI even aside from the superintelligence aspect you know it's about to start disrupting human society in various ways that are going to be challenging I think and that's the part of AI risk I focus on um so I, I agree with you that it's it's of academic interest uh you know true hardcore long-termism but of almost uh, no actual practical significance. Yeah, it, it could be a practical significance in hypothetical situations that we might face in future, but I don't find it interesting. And, and it's not personally the thing that motivates me so much today, to be honest. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't want to die in a horrible pandemic uh, that's prompted by bioweapons or you know, AI-enabled bioweapons. I'm about to have a kid. I'm very worried about the world that my child is going to grow up in. in um, and so kind of across the board, thinking about myself, my friends, my family, uh, about the world that I want to continue to live in, about, you know, the next generation, uh, as well as generations after that, it kind of all points towards maybe humanity should think more about the effects that it's having, about the risks that it's currently running, yeah. uh, and do, do a bit of a better job at coordinating itself and doing risk management. Yeah, and this is the sad thing, I think, about what SBF, well, there's more than one sad aspect to the story, I guess, but is like, you know, these problems, pandemic, bioweapons, AI, nuclear war, and lots of other things, I think are just undervalued in our current politics. I mean, it completely blows my mind that I think any reasonable person must concede there's at least some chance that the COVID pandemic was started by a genetically engineered virus that escaped from a lab. Whatever probability, I don't see how you can say there's like zero, right? And you would think. That would, at a minimum, uh, draw our attention to the fact that, wow, we're living in a world where that can happen. So yeah. obviously, our governance structures are not up to the challenge. It could have very, very easily happened, whether it did or not. And yet, there's almost no conversation about that in, in you know, in political discourse. Uh, yeah, that's an area where I think... Um People who are associated with effective altruism had got, got a bit of a win last year where they were involved in advocating against this USAID program, Deep VZN, or Deep, huh. Deep, Deep Vision, uh, which, was got, which was spending uh, uh, $125 million, I believe, to, to go out and basically hunt for viruses in uh, bat dung, I suppose, out in caves that people never visit in order to try to you know, anticipate what might be the next pandemic uh, that, that could that could jump over from nature. Um, the, the reasoning being, well, if we could figure that out, we could develop countermeasures ahead of time. But I think uh, a reasonable analysis uh, done by people who 
didn't have a particular bias in favor of doing this work suggested that it was a negative expected value in that yeah. it, this was far more likely to end up accidentally causing a pandemic than it was to give us the information that we needed to prevent one. Uh, and, and that case ended up, I think, winning the day and, and the program was 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 defunded oh. and shut down last year. Um, so, yeah, I think that, so there is some discussion of this issue. I think I think it's more like, well, it is certainly possible that COVID uh, came out of a lab. I think the main thing would be that it was probably a virus that was discovered basically as one of these programs in these virus hunting programs and then maybe modified uh, a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think of it more as it's this sort of virus, like let's go find all of the dangerous viruses and stick them in a, yeah. in, in a lab. We just don't have a sufficiently good record of lab safety and preventing leaks. In fact, we have quite a bad record of it, uh, such that I would just rather not have the next pandemic sitting in a SL2 lab facility somewhere. I'd rather mm -hmm. it be in a cave and no one know about it personally. Mm -hmm. But the possibility that there was alteration of the genetic material, you know, points to a second risk. I mean, uh, first of all, yes, gain of function research can go awry. I wish we'd keep that in mind. But also, there could be some bad actor somewhere uh, that we don't know about uh, who's actually trying to make this happen uh, and unleash a virus. And our, I think our government structures uh, are nowhere near up to that challenge. They would have to be, to some extent, international to work. And and I don't, you know. Uh, so anyway, there's that. Now, uh, to say that the long-termism uh, thing is kind of overdone, uh, and overdone as a critique of effective altruism, is not to say uh, that uh, effective altruism money has been ideally allocated. Uh, and it, it's not to say that the allocation hasn't been to some extent warped by an overemphasis on some things. And I noticed that on the uh, Center for Effective Altruism website, there's something I've never seen before, which is if you click the about thing, one of the things you can then click on is called mistakes. I've mm. never seen, I've never seen <laughs> that. And, and, uh, and they go through, and, and I think there's one point where they say, they did. There was an undue emphasis, at least at some point in their history, on um, on uh, AI superintelligence, uh, the kind of doomer scenarios. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wondered, well, first of all, whether you think there's been an overemphasis at times, and also whether uh, the movement fell prey to something that's very easy to fall prey to. Uh, you know, I run a very small nonprofit that this podcast is actually part of. Uh, and this is not so much an issue for us now because we've kind of moved from a philanthropic donation model to more of a crowdfunding model. But mm. uh, but I noticed back when we were almost wholly reliant uh, on on grants that it very it, that can very readily shift your focus. Now you're not going to take on tasks that that you uh, actively disapprove of or that aren't in some con uh, sense consistent with your mission but it can lead you to uh, allocate your activities in a way that doesn't proportionately reflect your actual priorities. And I'm wondering if you mm. think that, you know, there's a lot of Silicon Valley money mm. uh, that is in the hands of people who are concerned about, uh, you know, the AI superintelligence risk. I'm wondering if you think that that has, that that has at some point had an effect. Yeah. So, so I, I actually took, took a look at the numbers on this uh, in prepping for, for, for this interview. Um, and there are people who've gone and looked at, you know, among the, the big sources of funding that are associated with effective altruism, where are they? Like, what, what sort of problem areas are they are they giving to? Um, and, and if you split it into, so, so there's 
kind of long-termism and existential risk and catastrophic risks and risk from technology, AI, things like that. Maybe let's say that, that that's one cluster. And then there's stuff that's definitely not that, which uh, typically uh, is called global health and well-being work. So this is work to you know uh, remove lead from paint in the developing world, to provide bed nets, to prevent people from getting malaria, uh, to do research into new vaccines for malaria, all of that sort of thing. And I think if you, if you go back to the to the very beginning, looking at the at the biggest donors, then the ratio is actually three to one in favor of the global health and well-being work. Mm. Um, it's gotten quite a lot more money than the work focused on AI or existential risks or things that are associated with long-termism. And that was true last year as well. Actually, it was about a three to one ratio between them. So I think many people have the perception that effective altruism as a community, as an intellectual movement, is really dominated by AI and existential risk. Um, and I think I can understand where they get that perception. Uh, and I think it's because people have found it more interesting to talk about the last few years. It's in some ways more interesting to talk about artificial intelligence than it is perhaps phase three trials of a new malaria vaccine, or, or how are we getting lead out of paint in, um, in Malawi. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, just in the background, quietly, there's a lot of projects going on that are focused on present day people and present day problems that I think are having a, an amazing impact. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I could mention some of them. Um, now, personally, I think I, I might individually prefer it to be a bit more towards existential risk and long-termism and artificial intelligence and so on. Uh, I think that might be a bit too extreme of a ratio. Uh, but it certainly is the case that global health and well-being is large. It's funded a lot. There's many people working on it. Uh, it maybe is just underrated. And pe yeah, people don't uh, people don't put as many eyeballs on it as as perhaps it warrants. Yeah. The um. I, I, so one one. As I said, one context in which this this AI risk issue came up was the open AI board drama. Hmm. Um, I'm kind of uh, and and the point made was that two of the board members, it was initially depicted as basically a fight between people on the board very concerned about risk, and Sam Altman, who, in the view of these people, was moving too fast with insufficient consideration of risk he was it was full speed ahead on the development of this stuff um and i you know as details came out it became apparent that there was you know it was a more complicated story there was just some kind of interpersonal conflict that was maybe correlated with and not unrelated to that that the, the other dynamic the kind of uh philosophical dynamic um but it was a more complicated story uh and I'm uh, now people did say, well, uh, people who are casting it as this uh, in this kind of binary way. We're, we're saying, well, a couple of the board members uh, had were at places or had been at places that got money from open philanthropy, which is a big EA philanthropy, I guess, and so on. I'm wondering how you reacted to that story and uh, whether you think the, the kind of perception of it is is off. Yeah, I mean, I think I was astonished and taken aback, more or less, as 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 everyone was. Um, it wasn't something that I was expecting to happen uh, at all. I think, uh, yeah, you've tried to piece together what it, what was actually motivating the board and and, and what went down. Um, it's, it's 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 interesting that yeah, it has been quite strongly associated with effective altruism in some ways. I think. Uh, I understand why that's the case because you know, so one of the board members who supported removing Sam had worked at Open Philanthropy, which is certainly mm. influenced by EA ideas. And I think another was on the board of uh, Effective Ventures, 
uh, I don't know how large the influence was on her versus uh, her influence on, on effective altruism. But either way, yeah, th th there certainly were some connections. I think it makes more sense to think, well, wouldn't this have been influenced by concerns about AI safety, which, of course, go extend far beyond just uh, people involved with effective altruism. Uh, mm -hmm. Tons of people are worried about that now all over the world uh, for all kinds of different reasons. Um, and that was, I mean, very natural to assume that that was the explanation. It's kind of what what I would have guessed as well if I had to had to guess on the, on the, on the day. But as I think you've pointed out on the show before, they all kind of deny that it was anything to do with AI safety directly. That they had any disagreements about what OpenAI was doing. Um, it wasn't as if the board wanted them to not release a product or not pursue some research angle or whatever. I think my best guess is that that is narrowly true that there was no disagreement about, you know, should they be training GPT-5 or should they be investigating QSTAR or whatever it was. But the board, as they said roughly, they no longer believed that Sam Altman was the person with the right temperament to be doing this incredibly important, maybe historical work that they'd found him a bit shifty or unreliable. They didn't like some of the side deals that he was doing. They just thought he seemed a bit reckless, maybe, that, that he he didn't have the seriousness perhaps that they wanted to see in the CEO of OpenAI. And so seeing some of those warning signs, they said, well, if Sam Altman's not the person, then we need to get rid of him and replace him with someone else. And that's kind of, in their mind, I think was what they viewed as being their job uh, mm -hmm. as the as the board of this nonprofit that, uh, that controlled OpenAI. They, they were kind of put there to focus on safety uh, and reliability and the interests of society as a whole over and above OpenAI's interests as a business that might want to make money. Yeah. Um, so I would guess that that's, uh, that was in their minds. It doesn't seem like it worked out very well. I don't think anybody has said to the board, well played in the yeah. wake of it. No. I mean, it might have been that they had a very poor set of cards to play because maybe Microsoft was just so influential to, uh, because they were providing so much of the money. They had the team that could... Uh, influence the media much more than the than the board had perhaps but uh yes it doesn't seem like thing, like uh, that things that things have worked out poorly i would say from 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 their point of view um but yeah i mean well, i i don't have any particular um insight into yeah. into into what 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 they did so to some extent we might just have to wait and hope that eventually the story comes out in more detail yeah there was reporting that one of the board members is it helen toner is that her name um yeah she, she had, I mean, first of all, it's a fact that she had co-authored a paper that did cast, that raised questions about whether OpenAI was being as careful as, say, Anthropic, uh, which is a, which was founded by people who left OpenAI because they were concerned OpenAI wasn't concerned enough about risk, and which, by the way, uh, got some money, enough money from SBF that some people are saying ultimately uh sbf may be able I, I mean that 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 all of the people who lost money in that may actually ultimately get the money back because some of it was invested in anthropic which has been doing <laughs> well but that aside uh this the reporting was that um that uh altman had not only confronted her about that but tried to get her kicked off the board and in the course of doing that had misled other board members about the position of other board members on whether to kick her off. In other words, in this mm. scenario, he would go to somebody and say, well, you know, so-and-so on the board is, is ready to get rid of her and when that wasn't quite true. This is just allegations reported. I have no idea if it's true, but that's the kind of 
backstory you heard. Um, yeah, you can see how that would rub people the wrong way and might give them real question marks if, if, if they think, well, the CEO of OpenAI would end up being one of the most important you know, influences yeah. of the next decade, then maybe we want someone who we have greater confidence in than, yeah. than that. I mean, maybe the, the thing I'm very interested to hear more about that I haven't seen covered, uh, maybe that's my fault for not looking in the right places, but so Ilya Sutskova mm -hmm. uh, was also on the board. Uh, I think he'd worked with Sam Altman for a very long time. He was a technical researcher, like, uh, like one of the gurus on the ML research side, and also very uh, one of the leaders of the research into how do you make AI do what we do we want? Uh, how, how, mm -hmm. do we, how do we align it? And it seemed like he changed from supporting Sam Altman as CEO to thinking that they needed to remove Sam Altman as, as CEO. At some point, he changed his mind. Um, I, I wonder why. And then uh, it seems like he, he changed, it, changed it back. Um, but it, I think he was the swing vote, perhaps. I think um, so. And it would be very, yeah, it would be fascinating to know what was going on in, in, in his head. But as far as I know, we, he yeah. hasn't said. And there was conjecture again about personal drama there or professional drama there where was he, you know, did he, uh, was Altman treating him as well in the company as he'd like? Had he recently mm. gotten an implicit demotion or, what, or was there mm. a hiring that he found threatening or was he not getting enough resources? All conjectural. Uh, wouldn't shock me given what I, my, my view of uh, human psychology, if some of this was indeed in play, but I think there were real philosophical stakes as well. Um, yeah. So uh, listen, I, I, I mentioned the fact that uh, the Non-Zero Foundation is now l largely crowdfunded. And one implication of that is that uh, generally with these podcasts, we do, you know, have quite a long conversation for the public, uh, but then at some point, uh, go into overtime, and that is available to paid subscribers of the Non-Zero newsletter. Uh, and we are very close to that point. Um, and if you want to become a paid subscriber, uh, you can Google Non-Zero and Substack or just click click the link in your um, show notes. And after that, uh, you know, you can set up a podcast feed where you'll always have access to the overtime segment. So if you want to listen to the rest of this or you just think we're doing good work and you want to support it, I encourage that. Now, before we do that, I want to do two things, Rob, before we uh, bring down the uh, the paywall. Um, uh, one is to give you a chance to say anything you would like to say by addition or qualification to make sure that the public audience hears it. The other is is to uh, note something that, uh, that we agreed I would note. You had said that on your podcast, you always give people uh, the right to review the transcript. And if there's something, some little thing they wish they had said otherwise or something, and they really think it's important, uh, they can uh, have it uh, edited out. And uh, they almost never do. You ask if you could have, have that privilege. I said, sure, so long as we inform people that those were the circumstances under which it was recorded, A, and B, so long as if, if you're asking for things I consider egregious, I can just say, well, I'll just not not run the podcast, which, of course, is a power all podcast operators have anyway, I guess. But yeah. Um, so anyway, I, this is that full disclosure I mentioned. I kind of doubt we've said anything so far that you'll you'll find yeah. would be career ruining. Um, <laughs> but who knows? It's a it's a it's a it's a nasty world out there. You never know. Um, That's true. Yeah. Uh, is there anything you would like to uh, add? to what hmm. we've said already. Yeah, so, well, I suppose uh, if you enjoyed this, then maybe go subscribe to the 80,000 Hours podcast. Mm -hmm. um, as, as I said in the in the intro, it's a show about the world's most pressing problems and what you can potentially do to contribute to, to solving them. Um, 
Uh, yeah, we, we we do allow guests to review the transcript afterwards, and we put quite a bit of polish into 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 the interviews. Uh, and I think it's a good strategy because it allows people to be extremely candid during the interview. And then almost always after the fact, they decide that they want to keep the things in. But it means that they don't have to be constantly thinking about whether they're willing to have what they're saying go go out uh, as they're as they're actually trying to form the words. Right. Uh, so I think you actually get more candidness by allowing people to to edit the the interview afterwards. Um, I guess in terms of other stuff, well. So effective altruism has been in the news a bunch, and a lot of people have only just learned about it now. Uh, and I guess they, they've learned about it through things that are either very seriously bad or at least kind of scandalous and, and interesting. But there's also just a lot of stuff that's been going on for a long time that uh, I think people would generally regard as as very good, even if they're somewhat less less interesting and less likely to to hit the headlines. You know, People and organizations involved with effective altruism have been involved in funding phase three trials for a new malaria vaccine and getting it approved by the WHO uh, faster than it otherwise would have. Uh, they've been involved in getting up uh, Proposition 12, this uh, California ballot initiative to improve the treatment of farm animals so they're not confined in tiny cages. Um, and then also defending that in front of the Supreme Courts in the US so that, uh, so that it's upheld. Um, you know, hundreds of every year, hundreds, thousands of people take a pledge to give 10% of their income to the most effective charities that, that they can find to to make the make the future better and to make the present better. Um, less likely to, to hit the front page of the New York Times, but I think admirable work. Um, I really like a lot of the people who are involved in all of those projects and who are doing their best to, to try to make the world a better place. Um, so I don't know, I'll, I'll just say respect to, the, to, to, to those people. And I think we shouldn't neglect what they're what they're what they're doing. Yeah. And I do, uh, I, again, encourage people to listen to your podcast. You have, you know, a, a, a variety of great guests. I have, uh, I think more than once, uh, been inspired uh, to, to approach somebody about being on my podcast based on having uh, heard them on yours. Oh, even that's on, wonderful. Uh, even in, in the case of the Ukraine war, uh, Sam, what's his last name? It ran. Yeah. Sheriff, uh, uh, um, um, is it? Uh, we're both. Yeah, having, that's, it's, that's, it's almost that. Yeah. It's, that, um, that's, yeah, probably with an acceptable mispronunciation range. Uh, if we if we look at how it's act, but we may have it slightly off. But anyway, he was a great guest. I had him on my podcast. That was great. So thank you for that. Um, you've had a lot of good stuff on AI, uh, which I think is uh, yeah, really. You, you should get Nathan LeBenz on your show. Uh, I spoke to him a great length about OpenAI yeah. and other AI related topics last month, and I think you you enjoyed that interview, which came out just before yeah. Christmas. And I listened to his podcast, Cognitive Revolution. He's he's a very smart guy and, and seems very sensible. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, uh, I, I will I will try to do that. Uh, so anyway, thanks everybody who's listened up to this point. Again, I encourage you to to stay with us. Uh, but um, whether or not you do, thank you. And with that, uh, we will go into overtime.